two verses uh, this morning for us to be thinking about again, and they are verses 13 and 14 of Romans chapter 8. Just uh, want to remind us as we come to them that we're we're really just thinking about what this this life is, this Christian life, life in the spirit, and you know you you want so very much to to be able to find the words, uh, both for those who are familiar with these things and for those who are new to these things and and for those who have yet to taste these things, you know, you so long to find just the right words that will, uh, that will convey to us all, uh, wherever we are in, in our spiritual lives, our spiritual pilgrim, that what is being offered to us here, what is being described for us here, what is being outlined for us here, is something of transcendent beauty and wonder and glory. So try to, try to believe that as we read these words and as we think about them. Just these two verses, beginning at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, in fact, the children of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please grant us uh, your spirit, this very spirit who is spoken about here uh, by, by your spirit, Lord Jesus. Uh, come to us and walk among us. Walk among us, know us, speak to us, minister to us. Give to us the hope, the encouragement, perhaps the conviction that we need. But Lord Jesus, by your spirit and connection with your word, come and minister, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking at these verses, the verses I've just read, and we're kind of camping out on these particular phrases. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, and those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. And, and the particular question for this week uh, is, is, how does this work? How does this work? How do I put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Um, and how does the Spirit lead? How does this work? Um, and I, I wish, I so wish that, uh, that there was a book that gave you three steps, that there was a book that even gave you seven steps. I mean, heck, I'd take 12 steps if the, if the, the, the subtleties of this and, and frankly the difficulty of this could just be reduced to some sort of equation. But it's just, it just isn't that simple. It isn't that simple. But as we think about these things, as I suggested last week, where we're going with this is in the direction of what the church historically has referred to as the means of grace. The means of grace. Uh, that's what was referred to uh, in the confessional statement this morning. And I have to go over here and get my bulletin because... I want to read this to you, and I don't have it memorized. 
I have, I have 192 of the questions memorized, but I don't have this one memorized, so I'm sorry. But let me read it to you, and I want you to, to capture this language. L- listen to this language. How is the Word, how is the Word of God made effectual to salvation? Now, there is, a, there is a question that precedes this one in the larger catechism, and that question is this. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his people the benefits of his mediation? And, and that's worth a whole sermon in itself. What are the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to his people the benefits of his mediation? Now, here's what's so striking about that. The question asks, what are the means by which Christ communicates something to his people? You see, Christ possesses all of the benefits. He earned them. He secured them. They're his possession. The benefits and blessings of forgiveness. The benefits and blessings of sanctification. The benefits and blessings of adoption. The blessings and benefits of the grace of repentance. Christ possesses these. They are a treasure trove of blessing. And he possesses them. And the question asks, how do they get from him to us? What are the means? And the first of the three means, the outward and ordinary means, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation are these, the word of God and prayer and the sacraments. The first of them is the word of God. And that's where we come to this question. How is the word then made effectual to our salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The Spirit. You see, that's why I had to preach that sermon last week about expectation, What do we expect when we come here? And let me just suggest to you, as I hope will become clear as we make our way through this this morning, let me just suggest to you that the pastors who got together to frame the Westminster Confession of Faith together with the larger and shorter catechisms in the 1640s were not simply interested in justifying their own existence by saying, especially preaching is the means by which this happens. You understand what I'm saying? They, they, they weren't guys who had jobs and felt some degree of insecurity about their jobs, and so they framed a question that they expected people to memorize and believe in order to keep their jobs. No. What is at the center of this tradition? What was at the center of Protestantism? what flows down across the ages to us 
from before the Protestant Reformation, going all the way back to Augustine and back to Paul and back to Jesus himself, is this confidence that in the prophetic office, God is imparting life-changing words. Transformative words. And when those words are preached and heard in connection with the Spirit, This is a means by which God changes his people, beginning with the prophet. Beginning with the prophet. God has a goal here. God has an end in view. And there are means by which God gets to that end. We're talking about the means by which God accomplishes the end that he has in view. Means and ends. We all know what this is, even if we don't use the language. If you're going to prepare a meal for a group of people, for eight guests, you have the idea in your head, but the idea has to be worked out through your fingers. You have to employ means. You've got to make a grocery list. You've got to go to the store. Maybe you need to learn how to cook. That becomes a means to an end, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about means and ends. And so let's do three things. Let's try to do the first of them quickly. Let's first clarify what the end is. And in that connection, I hope it will become very clear to us what this business of the leading of the Spirit is all about. Let's clarify some things. Let's elaborate a couple of things. And then right at the end, let's try to apply this very simply and quickly. First, clarification. Let's be clear about what is going on here. God has a purpose for you as a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, God has a very definite purpose purpose for you, a goal for you. There is an end in view, and that is very clear in this text. And I just want to encourage you to look at the movement of this text as we move through this text and just rehearse some things so that we have clear in our minds what God's end is, what God's purpose is. Look, I know Bill Bright wrote that little tract, God Loves You and Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. Okay, plan, I know, and and I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I know the principal goal that Campus Crusade for Christ had for me when I became a Christian and, and was discipled by Campus Crusade for Christ. Their goal, their purpose, their plan for me, and I mean no offense, you know I'm not here to pick fights. Their purpose was to train me so that I could make other people disciples. That's a nice thing. It's penultimate. It's small. It's short of what God's purpose is, what God's goal is for me as a Christian. There's movement in this passage. Look at verse 9. You as a Christian are indwelt by the very Spirit of the risen Jesus Christ. You are no longer in the flesh. You are now in the realm, in the domain of the Spirit, under His governance, under His authority, under His power. That is where you are. That is who you are. And so, verse 12, you are no longer under obligation to the flesh, you see. 
You're no longer under obligation to that world, to that dominion, to that power. You have no allegiance to it, but rather you have a new allegiance. And as we said last week, and as we said several weeks ago, you actually have a new master, and there is a new bondage, and it is the most liberating, life-giving, freeing bondage that a person can possibly know. That's what Paul was saying back in chapter 6. You died to the old master. You were buried. You've been raised to newness of life. You've been given to a new husband. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And now, verse 13, you are in a fight. You are in a battle. You are in a battle. And the reason you're in a battle is because the Spirit has acted. And the Spirit has pulled you out of that old world and that old realm and by his grace and mercy and power has caused you to bend and subdue and sweetly embrace his rule and reign but you're still in a battle you're still in a battle and the battle is simply this it is the battle increasingly to disconnect yourself from that world that realm that dominion You're still sort of enmeshed in it. You're still connected to it. And you get connected to it through this physical existence with all of its passions and desires and longings. This physical body which remains under the curse, under the effects of the fall. This body which will die. This body with all of its passions which will pass away. But which will one day be raised. Right now, that's where the, the struggle is localized and where the battle rages. And the battle is in subduing the passions, the lusts, the desires of the body. That's why Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, I, I buffet my body. I keep it under. And he uses a word that is different from the word flesh. Flesh typically refers to this realm. But when he uses the word body, he's referring to that part of us that has this connection to what remains fallen and cursed. And it is in a real sense, as delightful and wonderful as our bodies are, they are a pain. Oh, yeah. They are. They're troublesome. Not just the physicality of them, but all of the stuff that is connected to them, the passions, the desires, and all of that stuff. But you see, verse 14, now you're being led by the Spirit, you see. And again, the Spirit is not merely prompting you. He's not merely making suggestions to your consciousness. Barb and I were sitting on the beach last night. We do it virtually every Saturday night. And, and we were talking about family members and talking about my mother, I think. And I was saying, you know, I think I need to do this when I go see my mom. And, and Barb said, well, maybe that's the leading of the Spirit. And I, and I picked a fight with her. And I said, no, it's the prompting of the Spirit. But it's not the leading of the Spirit, at least not as Paul understands it here. No, no, no. These are not promptings. These are not subtle hints and mere suggestions. No, no. In fact, the word, as we said, the word Paul uses describes leading someone and exerting a power and an influence over that person to such an extent that the person is incapable of resisting it. 
It's the word that's used to describe what happened to Jesus when Jesus was betrayed by Jews at Judas and he was led away. Now, he could have called a legion of angels from his father who would have come and could have exterminated anybody he would have liked. But you see, because of a greater and higher purpose, submitting ultimately to his father's will and purpose, Jesus was taken away, led away, and this is so interesting and so remarkable, could not do anything but submit. That's how Paul uses this word here. And so you see, you can't disconnect these two things. You can't disconnect in Romans chapter 8, verse 13 from verse 14. You can't, you can't allow the suggestion to enter into your head that Paul has shifted subjects. No, no, you see, it is the Spirit who, having begun this business in the first place, has laid hold of us, is leading us, is with us in the midst of this fight, and it is by His power and in His strength that these passions of the body are subdued. But look at where we're being led. It isn't just that we are being led. Look at where we are being led. We are being led. In this new environment, we are being led as by a parent in the direction of the parent's highest and greatest purpose for his people. You are being led into the direction of the full experience of the liberty and freedom of the children of God. You are being led as a child, verses 16 and then 17 through 21, by a loving Heavenly Father through the agency of the Spirit in the direction of the inheritance of the full blessing of the salvation Christ has accomplished with Jesus, your elder brother, with whom you are a co-heir in the direction of a new heaven and a new earth where the creation being freed from its bondage and your body being resurrected to know, to know that glory in all of its fullness. Where all of that comes at the end of history. You're going someplace, you see. There's movement in this. This is where we are headed This is where we are going. What is this leading of the Spirit all about? This leading of the Spirit is about taking you in the direction of home. Of home. Your truest and most perfect home. Where you are free. Where you are glorified. Where there is no more struggle. No more frustration. No more corruption. No more groaning. Home at last. Read it. Read the passage yourself. Read it multiple times. 
until we get the basic contours and the basic trajectories of this clear in our head. And then after you've read it, jump down to verse 32 and connect verse 32 of chapter 8 with what has gone before us. And you will see the deepest and most abiding and most reassuring piece of information that you can possibly receive. If you wonder whether or not it's going to happen, if you wonder whether or not you're going to get there, if you wonder whether or not the Spirit will let go of you, read verse 32 and remember, the Father has given you the single most precious thing He possesses. Your Father has given you the single most delightful object of His affection. He has given you His Son. And if He has given you His Son, won't He give you everything else? And then jump down to those last verses. There is nothing in all of the creation that will ever release the grip of the Holy Spirit upon you. Nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the trajectory. That's the movement of this thing. And that is what the leading of the Spirit must be understood in light of. So having clarified it, now we ask the question, how is he doing it? How is he leading me? How do we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh? Well, we begin where the Bible begins. In answering the question, how does the Spirit do this? We begin actually where the Bible begins. The first place the primary place, the place without which there are no other places, the first means, the means which gives definition to the other means. Okay, let me be clear about this. That means is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now the question, 156, actually it's printed as 26 in your bulletin. But it's question 156, preceded by 155. What are the outward and ordinary means? There are three that are listed. The word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. But there are other means which the Lord employs and uses by his spirit. Not the least of which is his church. This was mentioned in the inquirer's class this morning. That we are a people together. And we walk together and we move together as we move in the direction of our final inheritance and our final perfection, our final glorification, as we move in the direction of occupying this new heaven and new earth, the promised land that is set out there before us. We walk together and we need each other and we depend upon each other. Right? And we need from each other words of comfort and encouragement, right? And I said in the class this morning, because it was such a great insight and such a great point to make in the course of our discussion, I said, you know, too often when we come to church, we come to perform. We come to perform on the one hand so that we might not get caught. Or we come to perform on the other hand 
because we think that's what is expected. Now think about it. It's subtle and it's frighteningly dangerous. This is a little aside about the means of grace, okay? Some of you may have gotten the RUF uh, little weekly newsletter from our son-in-law, Brent Webster, who's at RUF Berkeley, doing RUF at Berkeley, and he included a little prayer from one of his students who is a new Christian. And the little prayer said something like this, Dear God, um, thanks so much for RUF, and, and thanks so much for Brent Webster and for his ministry in my, in my life. Thanks. No In Jesus' name, amen. Just thanks. Now, see, if he shows up here among a bunch of really informed, Bible-connected, Presbyterian and Reformed people, and he doesn't say, in Jesus' name, amen, we're going to look at him like he's from Mars. We're going to say, don't you know this is the way you do stuff? You see what I mean? And what he doesn't need, nor do you, nor do I, when we gather together as the body of Christ, is for us to bring a boatload of expectations about how somebody else ought to perform and behave. What I need from you is Jesus. And what you need from me is Jesus. Because we're in this together. The church is a means of grace. For the people of God, the church is a means by which Christ, who inhabits the church, who dwells in the midst of the church, actually builds and strengthens his church. But it's not the ultimate means, nor are the sacraments, nor is prayer. The means of grace, which gives definition to all of the other means of grace, and without which those means would cease to exist, is the word of God. All of them depend upon the word of God. We don't know about prayer, how to pray. We don't know about the sacraments, how they should be observed. We don't know about the truth. We know nothing of these things apart from the word of God. And as I said a minute ago, if we answer the question, what does the Spirit use? Let's begin where, in fact, the Bible begins. The Bible begins with a marriage of word and spirit. That is where the Bible begins. And that marriage of word and spirit in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, is is a marriage that sets a trajectory and gives definition to our understanding of how the Spirit works across all of the pages of Scripture down to this day. Let me show you what I mean. I've alluded to this passage, I think, in the past, but I want to camp on it for just a couple of minutes. Look at Genesis, the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A summary statement. That's what verse was is. One is. It is a statement which summarizes what is to follow. Verses 2 through verse 4 of chapter 2 unpack the significance of verse 1. If you will, 
Genesis 1-1 is the sermon text, and Genesis 1-2 through 2-4 is the sermon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now just, just pause for just a second. Please understand that there are points of enormous difference between us and God, but there are points of similarity. Right? There are enormous differences between us and God, but there are points of similarity. We are created in the image of God. We bear his likeness. And when God set out to create the heavens and the earth, he had a purpose in that. He created. We understand this. Again, if I'm going to create a meal, I not only have the idea in my head, but I employ means to get there. If I'm going to build a house, I've not only got the idea in my head, I've employ means to get there. God conceived to create the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, the earth, the basic stuff of the creation, the stuff which Hebrews tells us was created out of nothing by the very word of God, the basic stuff of the creation as it's described for us here in Genesis, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Who's there, friends? The Spirit of God is there. And how does this Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep, covering over this unformed and empty and dark primordial stuff, this unshaped stuff, how does the Spirit Function, work, operate, hovering over the surface of the deep. The next thing that is said, verse 3, and God spoke. And God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. Now look, folks. I understand that we're looking back through the prism of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we should do. And as we look back through that prism, through that cross, we should look back there and we should see in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, the presence of the triune God of heaven and earth. God, who by his spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep and who through his word in conjunction with that spirit drives away darkness, brings order out of chaos and fills up the emptiness with his own glory. That's the progression in Genesis chapter 1. From darkness and disorder and emptiness to light and order and life pulsating in such a way that the whole of it is filled up with the glory of God. And you know your Bibles well enough to know that John in the first chapter of his gospel makes that very connection. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that exists came into being through 
Him. And that Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we've beheld His glory. You see? The triune God present at the creation, the Father, if you will, superintending the whole thing, bringing it into existence and then forming and shaping and filling it up with his own glory, driving darkness away in the process through the agency of his Son by the power of his Spirit. Now here's a striking thing. If you flip ahead to the last of Moses' books, to chapter 32, of Deuteronomy. You read this really striking passage. Deuteronomy 32 is a song. It's a song that comes at the end of Moses' sermon to Israel before he leaves the scene and before Joshua enters onto the scene. And in the midst of that song, which is a celebration a celebration of God's grace and mercy and kindness, and it is also a recognition of of Israel's faithlessness and departures. In the midst of that song, you read these verses, verses 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy 32. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Here's the striking thing, the stunning thing. The word that is translated in the text, waste. He found him, verse 10, in a howling waste is the same word that you find in Genesis 1-2 that is translated formless. This word appears 25 times in the Old Testament. It appears at Genesis 1-2, and the next time it appears in the Old Testament record, it appears at Deuteronomy 32-10. It doesn't appear any place in between. And then in verse 11, the word that's translated in the ESV, fluttered, is the same word that appears at Genesis 1-2, which is there translated hovered. And the word means literally to brood over, to hover over with a feeling of tender love. This word appears a handful of times in the Old Testament. It appears first at Genesis 1-2. It does not appear again until Deuteronomy 32-11. Do you see what God is saying? At the end of these first generations, before the occupation of the land, before Israel goes into the land, my friends, I want to suggest this to you, that this highly privileged, this highly blessed nation, which has heard God's word across its life, which has been given this law of God, a law that is righteous. If you read Deuteronomy 4, it is a law which is designed to attract the nations, get the attention of the nations, because it is a gracious law. It is a merciful law. It is a kind law. Do you see what God is saying here? Having the law will not change you. If there is not the agency of the Spirit, 
fluttering, tenderly, hovering, engaged with that word, there will be no change. Isn't it striking to you that the last time these words are heard is at Genesis 1-2, where the spirit hovers over a primordial disordered chaos. The next time those words appear, God is describing himself as an eagle hovering over his people who are a wasteland. But it is God's design by word and spirit in them and through them to drive away darkness, to fill up emptiness with his glory and to bring order out of the mess of my existence all to the praise of his glorious grace. And how does he do it? By word and spirit, by word and spirit, by word and spirit, by word and spirit. As you make your way into the New Testament, You see this worked out. You see it pressed out. You see it producing remarkable effect. Let me just list the passages for you. Read them this week. It's your homework. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. This powerless, fearful, deeply conflicted apostle along with the other apostles hiding in an upper room someplace who possesses the gospel, who has been entrusted with the word of Jesus. See, it's not enough to have the word, friends. It's not enough to put the propositions in your brains. There's something more. And it is for the more that you and I must cry out. What happens? The Spirit is poured out upon the church and Peter, formerly fearful, hiding, terrified. Peter, because of the unction of the Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God, preaches and 3,000 people cry out. See, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. And I don't, again, picking fights. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Peter doesn't have an altar call. Peter doesn't have to invite people to come. When the Spirit gets wed to the Word, marries the Word, when the Spirit falls upon the preaching of the Gospel, people cry out, What must I do to be saved? Somebody said to me recently, You know, my church doesn't have revivals anymore. We used to have revivals all the time. Again, I wanted to say, Oh, really? Oh, really? So you can publicize when the Spirit is going to show up? You know when the Spirit is going to show up? You, you know when the Spirit is going to fall and do this work, this remarkable work of being wed to the preaching of the gospel and causing transformation to come to people, unchristians, non-Christians, dead in their sins, renewed, strengthened, transformed, the whole deal, people who have become lax, suddenly become serious again. You know when that's going to happen? Folks, I long for revival every Sunday morning 
for me, for you, in the context of gathered worship, as the Spirit marries Himself to the Word of God so that people's lives are changed. That's Acts 2. It's also 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, I didn't come to you with lofty words of wisdom. I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. Come to my house at 5 o'clock on Sunday mornings and you will see weakness and fear and much trembling. Tragically, tragically, not because I stand in awe of Jesus, Not because I stand in awe of the incredible privilege of doing this, but because I stand in awe of you. And more than anything else, I want to look smart, sound smart, feel sharp, and be sharp. See, I come here to perform too. And what I need more than anything else is for the Spirit of God to be wed to His Word in me so that I know who I am and I know what I do so that when I come here, God in grace and mercy might do the same thing with me, in me, through me, and with you. Galatians 3, verse 1. Paul reminds the Galatians as they are threatening to abandon this glorious gospel of liberty and freedom. Paul reminds the Galatians that in their very presence, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. How? How was he publicly portrayed as crucified? In Paul's preaching. Publicly portrayed as crucified. He was crucified in Jerusalem 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier. Publicly portrayed as crucified. How does that work? It works because the Spirit and the Word come together. And when the Spirit works and the Spirit is united to the Word, as people come prayerfully, dependent, expectantly, needy, knowing they've got to have something, Somehow in that mix and combination of things through the agency of foolishness, through the means of an idiot, God by His Spirit brings change. He does. He does. So how does the Spirit work? It begins here. It begins with His Word. It certainly begins in your private and personal reading of the Word. And here in the, in the context of gathered worship, in the context of God being in the midst of the assembly with His people, in the context of Jesus by His Spirit being present, walking among us, Spirit and Word by God's grace come together and effect change. What's the application? It's very simple. And we'll talk about this a bit more next week. Use this illustration next week. You are a sin-sick soul. Take your medicine. Just take your medicine. You don't need to know the chemistry. You don't need to know how it works and why it works. 
You don't need to know the ins and outs of medical science. Please don't stand on the sidelines wondering how this whole thing works, what the chemistry of it is, what the, what the ins and outs and the ups and downs and the nuances and the Hebrews and the Greeks and all of the rest of that stuff. Just take the medicine. Take it prayerfully, dependently, expectantly. And by God's grace, word and spirit are married to lead us ever more deeply into the realities that will one day be ours as sons and daughters of our loving Heavenly Father. Take your medicine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your strength. Please grant to us these things so that we might do what is in our power to do. Take our medicine. As we continue to think about these things, oh, Lord Jesus, please press home to all of us that all of this we do in the context of family. We are your sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters headed in the direction. Oh, thank you, Father, headed in the direction of the full enjoyment of the riches of your grace in Jesus. Hear our prayer. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen.